Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, the arts editor of the TLS, and I'm flying solo this week, so the chatting with myself part might be a bit difficult, but I do have lots to tell you about because the TLS is a co-sponsor or one of the sponsors of the Brooklyn Book Festival this week, and they're going to have a virtual festival day with literary panels over 40 authors on September the 25th, which is Sunday, I think. Some of the authors in attendance are Kamala Shamsi, Wasan Shire, Mosin Hamid, Jasmine Chan, Marlon James. There's also live events if you're in New York. They've got people like Joyce Carol Oates, stalwart TLS contributor, Bill McKibben, also TLS contributor, Martin Espada, Jennifer Egan, Esmeralda Santiago. It's New York's largest literary festival. And they have a children's day, lots of virtual things, lots of real life things. So, you know, head on down to that if you can. Now, coming up on this week's show, who's allowed to be an elf, dwarf or hobbit? But first, there's a play on at the Old Vic in London at the moment, still in preview, opening this week, which is already causing a bit of a stir. Not only because it has an Oscar winner starring in it, one Helen Hunt, part of an excellent cast, but also because the play itself is about the vexed subject of vaccination. But it's not what you expect. COVID-19 doesn't get a mention because it was written before COVID. It had its premiere in California in 2017. The author of this amazingly prescient work is Jonathan Spector, and we're delighted that Jonathan is joining us today to talk about his play, Eureka Day. Jonathan, thanks very much for coming on. It must be a very busy week for you. It is a, a bit of a busy week. Yeah, we have just a few previews left and have press night on Friday. So our 
you know, just in that stage of putting the, the sort of last touches on things. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just jump in and say, can you tell us why you wanted to write a play about the issue of vaccination? Sure. It was sort of a confluence of things. I was living in Berkeley, California at the time, which is a very, very progressive, probably the most liberal area in the United States or certainly up there. And, you know, I had the experience a couple of times of being in conversation with friends or, or sort of acquaintances and people who were, who like me had sort of good progressive politics and, you know, were very well educated and, and very smart. And I sort of thought we had essentially the same worldview and then would discover that they either didn't vaccinate their kids or were very sort of skeptical of vaccines and was so curious how it could be that, you know, we basically agreed about everything except in this one specific area, we seem to live in different realities. And mm -hmm. at the time I had just, you know, I had gotten a commission from a theater in Berkeley and I wanted to write a play that would feel very Berkeley kind of for that audience. And, and so I thought this would be a good something to explore. And, and so just began, as I often do, if it's appropriate for the subject, um, just kind of interviewing as a lot of people and talking to as many people as I could to kind of get their points of view and perspectives and did a lot of research and then eventually began writing the play. And the other thing that had a big impact on the writing of the play is I was writing it in 2016 and, and kind of, you know, working through the first draft, I would say in the months leading up to the 2016 election. And, you know, when these ideas, you know, when sort of fake news was a, a term that was first kind of entering our vocabulary, but even then I didn't, you know, I remember this very specific moment where I was at the auto body shop picking up my car and I, you know, there was a conversation with another woman who was there talking to the, the guy who worked there. And as everyone was talking at that time about Trump, it was the only thing anybody was talking about and with the hor whatever horrible thing Trump had done most recently. And I'm sort of joining, joining their conversation. And then the guy who is like working on my car, you know, turns to us and is like, well, yeah, I mean, Trump isn't perfect, but Hillary Clinton murdered 27 people. So what are you going to do? And three of us sort of all like turned to him and like, what, what are you talking about? And, you know, tried to sort of at, get him to tell us like where he got this from. And it became clear that he really believed this. And, you know, he was like, well, I don't know. I'm not political. It's just my wife is the one who knows about all this stuff. And she watches YouTube. And, and that was another moment of like, wow, it's, it's this phenomena where people who you think are living in the world with you actually, you know, live in a completely separate reality. And of course now, you know, what, six years later, I think that phenomenon is one we were all very, very familiar with. But at the time, it still felt quite bracing to encounter it. And I think that in some way informed writing the play as well. It's like you found a kind of pressure point and kind of pushed at it, as it were, that our worldviews seem incredibly similar apart from at this one point. So let's investigate the toothache, as it were. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, like it would be like as a piece of theater, certainly in thinking about writing, you know, for that audience of the theater that commissioned it, you know, I knew it was going to be a very liberal audience. And so to me to write for that audience, you know, it would not be interesting to write a play about climate change or gun control because everybody. Because everyone would agree. Yeah. And we would know that the people who disagreed are, were people that we don't like and respect and think are crazy. Whereas this was a, at least at the time, was a topic where it felt like there could be people just like you, but who experience this mm -hmm. differently. Of course, that's something that's sort of radically changed in the past, you know, since COVID. And at the time, you know, vaccine skepticism was not particularly correlated in a clean way with political 
partisan identity. Like there were vaccine skeptics on the left and the and the right, and they got there in, in different ways. But just knowing that somebody didn't vaccinate their kids did not necessarily tell you like what their political party was in the way that knowing that somebody doesn't believe in climate change, you know, will tell you what their political party. Mm. Now that's all changed because of because of COVID, because of Trump, because you know, because of all of these things. Here, it wouldn't still necessarily indicate. I mean, it might might be an indicator, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to say if someone didn't vaccinate their kids. Oh, okay, you think this, and you vote for these people. It's. I think it might be a bit less politically polarized here. But can you tell us how you set up the play then? What? Who's talking? What's happening with it? The play is set in a very progressive private elementary school, elementary and, and middle school. And the characters are the board of directors of the school or the, the executive committee, the, as they call it, and the head of school, the, the principal. The other thing that was happening at the time that I was writing the play is California in the United States, every state gets to make their own rules around school vaccinations, about what vaccinations are required to attend school and how rigorously they enforce that. And at the time in, I think it was 2015, California had among the most lax rules in the country. All it said is you needed, if you didn't want to vaccinate your kids, you just needed to fill out what they called a personal belief exemption. So you just needed to say like, I don't believe in vaccines. And that that was it. Uh, And then there was an outbreak of measles at Disneyland in I believe 2015. And that you know, led to a big shift and they they changed the law after much contentious debate and California then shifted to have among the strictest uh, laws in the country for childhood vaccinations for schools. And so that was also kind of very much in the air at the time. And there were the phenomena of, of some very, very progressive, sort of the most, what we would call like the crunchiest, like the most liberal sort of hippie-ish schools would also have very high unvaccinated rates of, of students. So that was you know, so it's setting up this school that is that in some way kind of like at the center of that and navigating some of that. And so the school board, they're talking about what they're going to do or what they want to do or what they believe they should do. Yes, I think the play is is attempting to, in some ways, get at that experience that I had of people who you think and who all themselves think they are sort of all the same and have the same values and believe, you know, they operate via consensus and believe in that. And then encounter this thing in which it's just sort of impossible to find a consensus around. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, so I haven't seen it yet, it's still in preview, but it's, as far as I can tell, you will tell me, you're the expert, but it's not a serious, I mean, these are very serious, very polarizing issues, but it's not a serious chin-stroking drama, is it? It's a comedy. How how did you manage that? Uh, it, It is a comedy. I don't know that I... I mean, I think I'm always, when I'm writing, I'm trying to, on some level, you know, amuse myself first, just to not get too bored and Mm -hmm. things are wretched. So I wasn't sort of setting out trying to write a comedy. I was just trying to write a play that I felt like was, you know, portraying the kind of people I knew in this community in an authentic way. But I think there is something that can happen when you put the way people actually talk and actually behave on stage it can sometimes be very funny. Mm. And I think that's sort of how it, how it came about. I certainly wasn't setting out to write like, but it is, but there is, yeah, a big comic element. There's a, without giving too much away, there's a, a scene where at a certain point they decide because they want to get more input from sort of the wider community of the school that they're going to hold a kind of a town hall meeting via Facebook. You see 
the comments from the people in the community. And that scene tends to get a big, a big reaction from the audience. <laughs> yes. In the way that, in the way that I, I did not anticipate when I was first writing the play. Well, because people <laughs> now know the horror of seeing comments unroll in real time, presumably. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It seems to me that you you like to sort of keep all sorts of possibilities up in the air in your work, politics and comedy and drama and kind of shock and that all that kind of thing. Is that a fair assessment? I tend to begin when I land on something that seems worth pursuing this play. I'm always sort of, it's usually formulated around some kind of question. And so it's just sort of trying to find all the different ways to explore that question and, and sort of try and use the play to, if not get an answer at to it, at least kind of dig into it more fully. Mm -hmm. To sort of look at it from every viewpoint, seriously and comically and kind of politically and from a human point of view. What's so tricky about these kind of conversations is like this, all of that is certainly there and talking about it in that way is, is also so disconnected from the sort of process of writing, which is so much about kind of like for me, at least, like you're just sort of like connecting one moment to the next in the scene and trying to kind of build this machine that will function. I was going to ask, is there any kind of tradition that you feel that you're part of, that you're writing in, or are you making up a new one? Who are your your literary guiding lights? Yeah, I don't know. I don't certainly don't feel like I'm, I'm making up a new tradition. I mean, you know, some of my favorite American writers who are working right now are, are, you know, people like Anne Washburn or Annie Baker, or Brandon Jacob Jenkins, people who are, I think, are playful with their language or ex exploring form in various ways are interested in both kind of a certain kind of naturalism and a certain kind of theatricality. But I I think it's hard to know. I mean, we're all sort of an, an accumulation of like all of the things that we encounter in, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And so in Eureka Day, you don't come down on one side or the other do you is that right that must be a difficult balancing act I think the characters have strongly held points of view and I think in a certain sense the play does as well but I in terms of the way the action unfolds but it's I do feel that there was something I was very conscious of in, in writing it as I don't I wanted to make sure that I was portraying the point of view that I don't hold in a way that feels authentic and fair at the same time to me, the worst outcome would be that somebody comes to see the play and and walks away thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't vaccinate my kids. <laughs> Everybody stops vaccinating immediately. <laughs> right. So, I mean, luckily that the reality is, you know, having done a lot of research about this in the course of writing the play, when you talk to people who are kind of experts in this stuff, what they will tell you is that it's actually extremely difficult to change someone's point of view about vaccines. So I think the likelihood that a play is going to impact someone's behavior in that regard is quite minimal. I At one point I was talking to this this guy who is a public health doctor in Oregon who in an area with a very high unvaccinated rate who had gotten a bunch of government funding to do a program to really try and and reach reach people. And there was he was like a sort of documentary was featuring him and and I had spoken to him several years later after this had all happened and after I'd seen him in this documentary. And he said, yeah, I think my my point of view on all this has changed a bit now from when we were doing that. I now think it's almost impossible to change people's mind about this. Like, oh, OK, <laughs> the people who are like on the fence, you can kind of influence them. But the, once people have a strongly held point of view, you just you know, there's almost nothing you can do, which was, you know, quite depressing, too. And what I also heard from other experts is that the actually the only thing that changes people's point of view again, pre-COVID, 
about measles or mumps or, or whatever it is, is when there's an outbreak in their community. And then who previously did not get vaccinated will get their kids vaccinated. Because it, part of it is the perceived risk is we, you know, we don't see measles anymore. We don't see until, you know, what, a few months ago, we don't see polio. So people just perceive the risk to be quite low because they don't, because of enough people are vaccinated that we don't see it. Mm -hmm. So if it's set in a private school, as you say, in this very liberal area, it's quite a specific and quite a privileged slice of life, isn't it? That's within a fairly certain class that you're looking at those attitudes, because there will be different attitudes, presumably within different classes as well. Was that because you just wanted to use the people that you had talked to and that experience? No, it was, I mean, there was a practical part of it, which is that the private schools have more leeway to set their own policy than the public schools. Oh, I see, right, yeah. But the more substantive reason was that the core of the debate around, you know, childhood vaccinations and different points of view comes down to this idea of like the individual versus the community, the sort of getting to have your individual choice and doing what you feel like is right for you versus doing something that is right for everybody. And that same in the play does sort of point at this specifically, like there is an analog to that in the choice to send your child to a private school. And there's an inherent contradiction in the existence of private schools that see themselves as oriented towards social justice and being progressive mm. because of course, like the most progressive thing you could do is not send your child to a private school. <laughs> that contradiction yeah. felt like, yeah. a, you know, a metaphorically and, and kind of practically like a, a useful one to kind of tie up in, in all of this. Mm -hmm. And has the play changed? Have you changed it at all in the light of COVID or not? Is it just exactly the same as it was? Because you must have been watching this thinking, oh, OK, well, <laughs> this is different. Not in a substantive way. I mean, I've tweaked some lines just to, you know, a rehearsal with a play. You think, oh, that moment, you know, doesn't quite work as good as it as it should. Let me let me change that line. But nothing that I haven't changed anything for COVID or as a result of kind of the world shifting. So the issues they're still the local ones, as it were, about measles or mumps or you know, there's no pandemic in it, as it were. No, no, the play is set very clearly in 2017. I feel like it would be unbearable if it were about COVID. Who would want to go see a play about COVID? Yeah. Well, also you'd have a. It would be a big rewrite. I just wondered if you, you know, if you if you had felt like you had to kind of acknowledge it. But I see if it's set there, and so then bringing it to Europe, you don't want to make it European because it's very specifically about this bit of America at this time. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's true. And it certainly. I, and it's been very gratifying, even in the. You know, we've had about two weeks of previews, and and to see the audience is is responding to it and seems to get it so well. I mean, really, even after that, it was a question I had from that very first production we did in California, because it was a play, you know, set in the community that it was being performed in, and you know, people responded very positively to it. But I. I didn't have any idea how much, to what degree that was simply because people were seeing their own community on stage and whether mm. connect to it in other places. And now it's, you know, it's been performed all around the United States and in Australia and, you know, and, and so it's, it's quite gratifying to see that people seem to connect to it, even though it's set in this very specific place in this very specific time. Well, we have had similar kind of localized versions of it. There's probably a different one in every country, isn't there, about a slightly different illness. It's an issue and has been for a while, and you've pinpointed it, as it were. Um, presumably it changes, the feel of it changes a bit with each new cast. Have you been like in rehearsals with the new cast? Are you still 
tweaking and rewriting little i mean not now because you're in previews but were you i wouldn't say not now i'm oh maybe know, now <laughs> the, the actors may wish i wasn't at this point but I, you know we do have a couple, you know like two new lines we want to put in today but luckily I, i've been able to be here for most of the process i was here for the first two weeks and then i i came back for the last week before we started previews. so i i've been able to be around for quite a, a bit of it to be able to um to yeah just keep kind of massaging it you know and some of that is just moments that, you know, that you never quite works the way you want them to and trying to perfect it. And some of it is the thing of plays, which is that you, where you're in a process and you're working on it and you're making small adjustments and some of what you're doing sometimes consciously or not is adjusting a line so that it sort of lands best in the mouth of, of a certain actor. And so then when you have different actors, you're like, oh, actually, no, let me, mm. let me tweak that for you just so that it, it, it feels better, you know, coming out of your mouth. And, and so there's, there's a little bit of that. It's it's kind of both like the frustration and, and joy of playwriting is that you can never really, you know, you can never really perfect it because it's only really can be perfected like for a certain set of people making the play. Mm, yeah. And but logistically, do you do that every time? Are you able to do that every time? Because you have a different director and stuff every time, or or do you, could you just do it with some some productions? In the first production, I was doing, you know, quite a bit of kind of all the way through which is is fairly typical and then there was another production the the production in New York which I was I was quite involved with although I didn't do a ton of rewriting and then this production I, I've gone to see some of the other productions but I haven't been really involved in them um and I think this will probably be the last production that I am in in in, in, the, in this deep with at a certain point you do have to just kind of let it go but this is such a you know, it's such an incredible group of, of people and it's, it's such a, you know, to be at the Old Vic. So I really wanted to be able to kind of fully be a part of it. Mm. Well, it sounds completely fascinating. And as we said, it's opening officially on Friday, isn't it? The 23rd, is that right? That's, yeah. yeah. And so thank you so much, Jonathan, for talking to us. Oh, thank you so much. Still to come on the show, elves, dwarves, trolls, dragons, lords and rings. Yes, you guessed it, it's the latest iteration of Tolkien's world. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, you may have noticed since the beginning of September some modest announcements of a small TV series based on a little-known book called The Lord of the Rings. It is, of course, almost impossible that you haven't noticed it since it's been flagged, advertised, marketed, and now discussed almost relentlessly and we're still only four episodes in. We've given the dust some time to settle and then asked someone who's been working and teaching on this for over 10 years to give us her expert view. So we're delighted to welcome Dimitra Fimi, Senior Lecturer in Fantasy and Children's Literature and Co-Director of the Centre for Fantasy and the Fantastic at Glasgow University to unpack it all for us. Dimitra, many thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So this has all been flagged for a while, as I said, hasn't it? There's been a lot of run up and you, you say in your piece that you had mixed feelings about it can you tell us why well there's been a long run as you said we've known about this for a long time we've known since the rights were resold and of course the amazon studios kept the whole thing very very closely secret so there were no major leaks or anything anything like this so that the anticipation has been building for a long time i suppose my interpretation as with any adaptation is will they strike the right balance I suppose I was also worried about will it be quite derivative, you know, quite similar to other things we've seen, because fantasy as a, as a big part of the film and TV industry is becoming bigger and bigger. And there are templates now, you know, thinking about the success of Game of Thrones, for example, or the previous Lord of the Rings films, you know, would they would they stick to some of the same tropes or would they try to do something a bit braver and bolder and different, you know, aesthetically? But also, I suppose, you know, being a Tolkien specialist, I knew there would be, you know, there, there will be bits that I will enjoy and there would be bits that I would probably find quite difficult to stomach because it's it's knowing the world too well. I suppose every reader, you know, that, that would go for everyone. Every reader has their own understanding and reading the text. You know, there is no one interpretation ever. Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, you know this field incredibly well in great detail, but and you were already concerned before it came out about what some reactions to the diverse casting would be because it became clear before it came out that there was diverse casting uh, didn't it and alas you were right can you unpack this a bit for us I mean basically you knew this was going to happen didn't you 
Well, we knew that when back in, I think it was January or February, they released, actually, it was quite interesting what they did. They released a few posters of actors' hands holding particular objects and we could see a bit of their a bit of their dress a bit of a bit of a, you know what they were wearing and a few objects so it's a bit of material culture I suppose mm. but of course it was pretty obvious right there at the beginning that not all of those hands were white hands and that there were non-white sort of actors involved in and obviously also in positions that were quite central in terms of uh, main characters etc which to me was actually really lovely to see you know this is part of what I was ready to applaud in terms of how this adaptation, you know, what direction it would take things. I wasn't that surprised, but still quite disappointed and sad to see the sort of backlash of Middle Earth is all white, how dare you? And also, you know, this very, very problematic dichotomy of, you know, all the good characters are mostly white, all the bad characters are mostly non-white, which, which is a line that Tolkien does have, and it's, it is a problematic line. And, you know, as I said, I'm glad that the adaptation is sort of going beyond that and sort of complicating this dichotomy. Mm. But yeah. clearly, the sector of the fandom got quite upset about that. And some of the comments were, there's no other way to describe it. You know, they, they were pretty racist and horrible. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I was talking to Alex about this when we were preparing it. It's a shame she can't be with us today, but she was saying, look, if you believe that it's an elf... How could it possibly make any difference to you what colour the elf is? Do you know what I mean? It's totally. it's already a big leap of faith if you if you go, okay, that's an elf, that's a dwarf, that's a hobbit. Absolutely. It's already an imaginary world. We're not talking yeah. about you know, a realistic representation anyway. But still, you know, even if we impose the same rules that we would with realism, think about what theatre or, or film or TV has done with historical figures who have been represented as non-white for a long, long time now. You know, there's <laughs> mm. a long trend of this. And it is about belonging and it is about sort of questioning wrongs, really, of the past. I remember when, you know, that first debate started, I was tweeting, I was reminding people about, you know, non-white actors playing Prometheus, you know, in the, in the 80s or 90s, or actually a Victorian actor who was a black Victorian actor playing Shakespeare back in the 19th century. You know, there's a long mm. tradition of that, you know, and don't get any of course uh, on sort of statues of Christ in different churches presented as black. None of that is new. There's nothing new about it. And that's, I think, a part of the shock of many people where, okay, well, why is that any different? I was wondering why people are so kind of protective and so literal about it. Do you think it's because it's often something that people encounter when they're children? There's an element of that, but I think it's more it's more than this. I think that Tolkien for some uh, for a section of the fandom is sort of a sacred text. Yeah. The Lord of the Rings, the entire legendarium, has been elevated to the status of a sacred text. And it's sort of, you know, it, it's crossing that line, <laughs> you know. Right. So you're not allowed to change anything at all. The terminology was mm. nearly, you know, that of a violating sort of religious line. And of course, you know, we, we know about Tol Tolkien was, of course, a devout Catholic. Again, you know, that is pretty well known and evidenced. But that means that there's also a section of the fandom that actually sticks to that as an absolute rule about everything. And that is what defines, you know, for them uh, his work. And again, you know, these lines, when, when they get crossed, it becomes... It becomes something more than just fiction for certain people. Yes, it's something to do with childhood and them not wanting something that they treasure from their childhood to change at all, even if actually the change is, in fact, very positive. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. There's definitely an element of nostalgia or sort of, I wanted to be like it was in my head sort of thing, right? But again, that that sort of bypasses the recognition of the fact that what you've got, you know, in what you imagine in your head, you know, how you imagine these characters in your head is part of, you know, your own worldview and your own ideological background. It's, you know, the way you grew up and the way you understand the world around you. That doesn't mean that everybody understands the world, the world around them in the same way. This is part of a global audience. Really. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. has been a lot of, in Tolkien scholarship and in fandom, that definitely in the last 10 years has been a, there has been much more visibility of fans of Tolkien from all over the world, especially non-white fandom and also fans that identify as LGBT. Plus, you know, who are also saying, actually, we are also enjoying this text. We also read ourselves in this text. And, mm. there's, you know, why should we be stopped from doing this? Mm-hmm. So what do you think then of the show? There's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the show itself? Well, as I was saying in my review, it's, it still feels like, you know, it, it's early days. There's lots of storylines that I've no idea where they're going with. So, you know, I'm going to have to sort of come back and, and do another mm. one at the end of the series. Sure. What I'm enjoying at the moment is the world building. You know, I'm, I'm really enjoying the fact that we're going to places in Middle Earth that we haven't seen represented on stage before. And where the the creators have this blank canvas to sort of create material cultures, and that's where I think they're doing some amazing work. So, seeing Numenor in the third episode was brilliant. Uh, those scenes at the, at the prologue where we see Valinor as it was before the trees are destroyed. You know, these are the mythological places and times. You know, the chronotopes, the take the space time in Tolkien's world that up to now we've never seen represented and these are huge titanic sort of epic moments in the mythology so it's really really lovely to see those i also like the fact that we do see characters that we know from later times now in a slightly different stage of their lives and having different priorities and different motivations i found some moments jarring but generally it's nice to see galadriel at an earlier age you know to see her more rebellious and more sort of you know having more agency than the white lady sitting you know, in a secluded space in Lothlorien in the Lord of the Rings. Having said that, there's also elements where I'm thinking, oh, okay, that's going a bit too far for me. But again, these would be personal reactions and personal sort of <laughs> subjective understandings of characters. I think sometimes language I found a bit jarring. So I talk in my piece about accents. What I didn't have space to talk about is it was all the terminology. You know, at times I'm thinking, Kelembribor was talking about his project to create a forge. I was like, oh, just the word project doesn't sound right. It sounds too corporate and sort of. Mm, yes. Yeah. Like, like he needs a project exactly, manager something to deal like. with it. So at times yeah. I sort of picked on little details. I'm like, oh, don't, don't give me that word now. Find a better one, you know, just make it fit. I have to say the, the script, I believe it got better, but the script in the, in the first one, mm. I know they had to do a lot of exposition, but it was, I thought it was quite kind of stilted. Do you know what I mean? It didn't flow. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of people standing and explaining things to each other in semi-formal language. Yeah, and and I suppose, as you say, there had to be an element of that in terms of establishing peoples and storylines and sort of giving background. But I think you're right. I think as we went on to the following chapters, we do get better dialogue. Although at times also I felt that this, it's interesting you call it stilted, but at times this sort of more formal language of the elves I found more fitting than when you know you start getting Galadriel very arrogant in there by the third and fourth yes 
it wasn't so much the fact that they speak kind of quite formally because you might you know you sort of might expect that a bit it was just that it wasn't it almost wasn't like a dialogue some mm. of it would be like i am going to say my line about what happened in history and then i'm going to say my line about what happened in history it seemed a, a little not the actors fault the actors were very good it just it seemed that the dialogue wasn't a kind of flow or a yeah. you know a give and take you said an interesting thing about the use of the species names can you tell us about that point that I thought was a bit of a bad hangover from the Peter Jackson films. So I really don't understand why. I get the point that you want to play up the rivalry between dwarves and elves because that's what people would recognize from previous films or, you know, from the texts up to a point. But why should, you know, Galadriel be or Elrod be referred to as you elf, you know, in, in front of them, you know, in that sort of derogatory way? It just doesn't happen in the texts at all, not in that way. You wouldn't you you know you wouldn't use that term. It sounds derogatory. It sounds like you know you're putting somebody in a, in a category to to denigrate them. Peter Jackson did it a few times, but I think this is taken to an extreme here, and it just it just it makes me flinch every. It makes me cringe every time I hear it. Actually, I think mm. it needs to be dropped and and used either very sparingly at particular moments, or to be dropped. It just doesn't it doesn't yeah ring right. Mm. But as you say, the visual element, there's some amazing shots, which presumably is, uh, I don't know how much of it's CGI and how much of it's real landscape, but there's amazing things that look like drone shots from on high. Yes. Some kind of wonderful things that make you feel a bit sick almost because they kind of dip down into a valley and it looks very beautiful, but it's quite a similar aesthetic, isn't it, to the films? You you made this point. It's a kind of Art Nouveau, Arthurian almost. It's a kind of pre-Raphaelite thing, isn't it? Yeah, sure, sure. And again, I think this is part of that has to do with, you know, which is the conceptual artistic team. And it seems like there's quite a bit of continuity between, between the two. So the Elvish realms look very similar to the aesthetic we had at the Peter Jackson films. I think I was more interested in, in Khazar Doom, for example, in Moria, which now is mm. fleshed out and it's actually a living realm rather than this abandoned space that we see in the Jackson films. And also the Valinor, obviously, again, is a bit of a blank canvas there, but Numenor is the one that is quite fascinating in the sense that we we haven't been there before and they seem to have brought together different cultural elements from possibly Egypt to the Mediterranean, I mean, the Numenorians are a mismatch of cultures in, in Tolkien's work already. You know, we have, you know, he talked about them as, you know, sort of a Roman Empire in its decline or, you know, the Egyptians with, with their sort of reverence for death and embalming. But at the same time, the mariners, they are, you know, there's elements of sort of Viking seafaring in the way that they, you know, in their relationship with the sea. And some of those elements I started seeing, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of of that and what, what's fascinating to me is how much of the scholarship actually the team are aware of because all of these oh really I'm wondering because all of these elements that we're seeing represented on the screen have been discussed for a few decades now and have been taken apart and you know picked apart so mm. yeah I'm waiting to see more I think the scale also I would at the moment I'm working on a one of my new projects for the next book is on miniature fantasies and fantasies of little people and you know scale and smallness mm. in children's fantasy in particular. I really liked how the Harfords, the, you know, the ancestors of the Hobbits are portrayed and how scale is being used there to show mm. a little. Because the only person we see them against is the stranger, who we don't know who he is, but obviously, you know, of a, of a mannish sort of stature. He does look very big. But it's those first scenes where we see the little Hobbits stealing blackberries 
The berries, yeah, yeah. And the berries are huge in their hands. And we suddenly realize, oh, look, okay, yeah, yeah. I can see the scale here. These these are not little berries on a human hand. These are huge berries on a little hand. And that worked mm. quite nicely, I thought. Yeah, that was nice. I meant to ask you, actually, in terms of you're talking about the scholarship, can you just sketch out for us what they are allowed to do, as it <laughs> were, what the writers have access to and what they don't have access to? Mm. Because it's reasonably... Well, it's not that complicated, but it's interesting. It is and it isn't. Yeah, what went out for sale were the same material that the Jackson films had. So the whole of The Lord of the Rings, the whole of The Hobbit, and including the appendices of The Lord of the Rings. So that's the stuff that was sold during Tolkien's lifetime and no more, not an inch more than that. And that's what the estate have decided to sort of stick with. So they have, in terms of the, the period that they're setting this in, they have the appendices and that's what they've got. But of course, all of Tolkien fans and scholars know that all of this material is much, much more expanded, developed, told in much more detail in other publications, like uh, The Silmarillion, like Unfinished Tales, like the 12-volume History of Middle-earth, in which we see all the versions of all of those stories, etc. But they can't use any of that. So they have to stick to... I was trying to find an analogy, I think in the piece I'm talking about, the Doctor Who analogy, right? So mm. can, there's so much that the Doctor can do with human history. He can sort of meddle meddle with it after a point or she, but they can't, you know, change the big points, right? So in some ways, they're in the same territory. They have to stick to the larger storyline. So Numenor will fall, you know, they can't change that. Sauron mm. will come back, they can't change that. Bigger turning points have to be kept, but they have the freedom to do stuff differently leading up to those points potentially, or maybe tweak things. Talking to students recently, there's nothing new about that either, right? Again, talking about this as a sacred text. The Athenians in classical Athens who sat down to watch the tragedies of Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides, they knew the story, but they also knew the mm. tweaks. They, you know, famously Medea, Euripides is Medea. She doesn't kill the children in most of the mythological texts. That was his innovation. <laughs> so this idea of, you know, watching something that you know the main points of, but will be done somehow differently is a very, very old practice in our culture. It's, mm. You know, it's this sort of emphasis in originality of the 20th century that we sort of seem to be particularly stuck with at times, but it's <laughs> a very, very old tradition. So yes, they can play with, with the material as long as these big turning points are kept and, and are respected. But, you know, the more I've been watching those first four episodes, the more you realise actually the stuff that they seem to have alluded to that aren't in the appendices, but are in other materials. So what is going on there? I don't know. One big example is the map of Numenor. So the map of mm. Numenor shouldn't be in the material they have. It's only been published in Unfinished Tales. But they are using the map of Numenor as it appeared in Unfinished Tales. So it's not clear whether, can they ask for permission for smaller things on a case-by-case basis? Are there subsidiary agreements? None of this is in the public sphere at the moment. But I've started noticing things that I'm like, oh, wait a minute, that's not in any of the formal material. So what, what's going on there? I don't know yet. I think we'll find out. Interesting. So there is a little bits of other things creeping in. So the, what they're doing now is the bit basically a long time before the Lord of the Rings. Yes, they're doing the Second Age. There's still a long time before even that, but they're doing sort of... Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's ages. But does that mean that, you know, after I don't know how many episodes, that they can then also do the story of the Lord of the Rings as we know it? Sure they can, sure they can, of course. I mean, So they can re- they're going to redo that, do you think? They might or they might not. At the moment, it's not clear. I'm wondering how far this first season will go. You know, will they go all the way to... It's not that long. 
So will we end up with a revelation of who Sauron is and, and his appearance? In which case, then we have a whole mm. other series getting up to the point where, you know, the, the Numenorians are corrupted. I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether their end vision end point at the moment is to end exactly where the Jackson film started or whether they're going to go on and do that. There's no indication at the moment of how far this is going to go, but they could, you know, there's nothing to stop them from redoing the Lord of the Rings story. And, and again, right. I've said this publicly before, and I'm not going to give too much detail here, but I was involved with a rival bid when the rights went out for sale. So I know that other ideas were just a retelling of the Lord of the Rings in a different way. So that was on the table as a possibility by oh. other, other people. Okay. Oh, interesting. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you going to keep watching? Oh, sure. Sure, I'll keep watching. <laughs> and I will take ruthless notes and I will talk about everything else. You know, that's, that's what we do. That's the, the way that we, um, as scholars and as academics, engage with this process. It is an adaptation and there will be bits that will be interesting and there will be bits that I will not like and that's fine. Uh, but mm -hmm. if anything, you know, this, this is a chance to sort of to get to talk about more obscure parts of the legendarium with a wider public. You know, people are asking questions. People want to know more. My students want to know more. You know, So of mm. course I will keep on engaging. Sure. Brilliant. Well, maybe we should, we'll get you back probably every year to find out the <laughs> to update <laughs> in the next 10 years. We'll see you a few times yet. Sure. Dimitra, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Jonathan Spector and Dimitri Fimi. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.